Welcome to Eerie Essex. I'm Bethan Briggs-Miller. And I'm Ailsa Clark. Thank you for joining us on our journey into the strange side of the county. We will be exploring the folklore, urban legends and supernatural encounters that form part of its rich history. Welcome to Eerie Essex, A Darker Shade of Yule. This is our Christmas episode and we're joined by two very special guests, Joe Hickey-Hall and Icy Sedgwick. Yay! Um, and we're so excited to have you both. It's lovely seeing you. Okay. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's lovely to be here. Feels quite Christmassy. We're nearly there and yeah, it's nice. The winter solstice too. Oh yes, that's right. That's where I've been today. I love the Perfect. fact I'm nodding like people are going to know that I'm nodding on audio. <laughs> <laughs> We're always doing that. Like it was this big. <laughs> I think last episode, uh, me and Peter were doing like a um, a contortion off on the screen, but no one was talking. No one could so see it. it. Just... <laughs> <laughs> like it. Yeah. Oh, we have some fun, don't we? But yeah, we're very excited to have Joe and I see two of the people who probably, st- I think, yeah, definitely started me and Elsa off. Um, so we're joined by our heroes. So we we fangled already. So we we didn't hit record until we got it out of our system. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves? Icy. Oh, I never know what to say in these things. But yeah, I'm Icy Cedric of Fabulous Folklore. Um, in case obviously anyone hadn't twigged by the accent, I am from Newcastle-on-Tyne. Uh, no, Geordie Show is not real. Um, and yeah, I've been interested in folklore literally since I was ten. And just as we started recording this, I was showing you some of the pamphlets that I got, and they were one pound fifty, um, and they've got a nineteen ninety copyright on them. So uh, both dating myself and also showing how long I've been interested in sort of northeast folklore uh, and so on, I'd like to spread the joy. And you do. <laughs> and of course, we've had Joe oh. on the podcast before. We have, and I met Joe for the first time last week, and it was lovely. Right, the Mercy Museum, the Deepenings Project, which is really so great and worth checking out. And like you say, the videos are online now. Yeah, you can check them out on YouTube. Yeah, so many people I know that would have loved that to be there. So I'm Jo from Modern Fairy Sightings Project and Podcast. And yeah, I'm kind of interested in people's fairy experiences, as some of the listeners know, if they're heard me on this before and I'm actually from Jersey which you probably can't tell from my accent and I have to say Jersey housewives probably is a bit real (laughs) sadly (laughs) but um I think Geordie Shaw is probably a bit more exciting yeah we got with. yeah I was gonna say I can't say I've ever really watched an episode of TOWIE so I couldn't tell you whether it's real or not but they did used to um shoot they well they shot a couple of episodes in the estate where I live at one point so Maybe it's real. Maybe. Were you in it? I'm a I'm a Towie skeptic. <laughs> Towie skeptic. <laughs> I'm a believer. <laughs> the the only one out of all of those I've properly watched was Made in Chelsea, which Oh, I, I used to love Made in Chelsea. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, we were massive fans. <laughs> 
So tonight is probably the perfect night for swapping a spooky tale, a spooky bit of folklore. Elsa, you're going to be covering Essex. Mm-hmm. I'm going to step out of Essex just just for the night. I'm going to hop back home to Wales and share some things from there. I see what you're going to share with us tonight. It's going to be Northumberland and a little bit of Newcastle. Fab. And Joe? I've kind of let the side down here then. So I really should have been tucking into all of the, you know, the West Country. There's just a plethora of That's no experiences rules. for this time of year. But I'm all about Santa experiences at the moment, I'm afraid. And yeah, I'm just sort of trying to squeeze it into as many conversations as I can. No, that's brilliant. It's perfect Sadly, for this yeah. episode. Thank you. Well, it's a good excuse. And it's I'd really like to sort of hear what you all think and what what the listeners think as well. Do you want to go ahead and start telling us some Santa stories then? I can indeed. I can tell you about my journey with Santa experiences. Well, so recently for the last episode I just released, which was last Sunday, what date would that have been? Whatever date that was, just before Christmas, I I had spoken to a guy about a month ago and he had told me that he had seen something one Christmas time. He'd had a, like a, a experience around Christmas time. So, you know, I got around to speaking to him probably sort of end of November and I wasn't quite prepared for what he was going to tell me, to be honest with you. He started telling me that he had been in his room on Christmas Eve. He was 20 at the time. And he had heard this noise on the the roof. There'd been a a noise of what sounded like a a sled, like a loud thump and then a kind of sliding on the roof. Um, Hooves, he heard something then uh, like a thud with somebody getting out of something and walking around. And then the noise of something very heavy, like a large weight landing on the roof. And then, but the you know, the, the main thing, which was mind blowing was he heard sleigh bells. <gasps> and I know, you know, this to, to me, when I was listening to this, I was just, when he'd finished telling me, I just said, well, that's bonkers, isn't it? And that was my reaction because it honestly hit my boggle threshold. And so I talked about that in the um, episode as well, that, you know, we all have a boggle threshold. And this this kind of term was coined by Rene Hayes, who was a historian of psychical research. I think it was the 70s, this was. And she, um, you know, she talked about the fact that when researchers are, are doing their thing, you know, with sci research and all the rest of it, if there are some really crazy, nutty bits of data that they get back, they will just kind of disregard them as outliers because they're just too bonkers to even consider mm. including, right? And, you know, this is something we all do. And we've all, it depends on various factors like, um, you know, our own experiences, our beliefs, you know, knowledge, and just our general sense of what's possible in the world. And so there's me kind of talking to people about fairy experiences and, you know, werewolves and orbs and having had loads of experiences myself, really way out stuff. And for me, that's totally normal. And yet when this guy was talking to me about a Santa experience, it just, I was like, what? So, you know, we all have a boggle threshold. So I kind of did to him what other people would do if they heard a fairy experience. (laughs) It just doesn't kind of quite compute because it, it, it's beyond what we thought was potentially possible. So for that reason as well, I felt it was, this is why I'm, I guess talking about it is helping me process it in some ways, because <laughs> what happened next was that I then went on to the, the, 
the Modern Ferry Sightings uh, podcast group on, on Facebook and said, I've just spoken to this guy because honestly, by the end of the conversation and just by talking to him, I was, I found it extremely compelling. He wasn't saying, Oh yeah, this happened. And then I heard Santa, not at all. He was saying this happened and it's really weird and mm. can't quite get my head around it. And he hasn't been, been 20 at the time. It wasn't like a kid misremembering. This is it. He he was at college at the time. He was homestaying with his parents. This is in Washington State. And um, yeah, I was I, just, I was about to say he he was twenty, a college student. I was wondering whether he just had, had come home from a really good night out. But if twenty in America is uh, below drinking age, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, that's true. Yeah, he said it had just been kind of a normal Christmassy evening where they'd been out as a family for something to eat and then come home and, you know, not really much had happened. But when I went on the group and said, what do you think of this? And loads of people came back and said, yeah, I've, I, you know, this happened to me too. And this one guy, and I think this is really touching, actually, he has, he said, I'm just going to read it out to you. And he's given me permission to share this, by the way. I asked him specifically about this. He said, I've never told anyone this in my whole life, but I but felt I finally wanted to share after this episode. So he'd listened to it. I'm 45 now, but when I was young, probably seven or eight, I saw what I believed to be Santa in my room. I know how outlandish that sounds. And I have to stress, it wasn't a jolly guy dressed in red with a big beard. It was the early hours of Christmas Day. No idea of the time, but the house was silent. So I'm guessing early hours. I woke up and was aware of someone in my bedroom. I could make out a large figure in the corner of the room, not standing or sat down, but sort of sort of like knelt on one knee, I guess. I said hello and asked if he was Father Christmas. He, it, never spoke, but I got the sense that he nodded. I need to point out, I couldn't make out any features here, just the silhouette outline of a large person. I said hello again and got out of bed and took a step towards him. It. My bedroom wasn't very big. I reached out my arm and touched what I assumed to be his forearm and it was real and solid. At this point, I got scared and jumped back into bed. And when I looked back over, nothing whatsoever. It had gone. It could have been my imagination, I guess. It absolutely wasn't a dream. I know that much, but yeah, I felt compelled to share that with you after 38 plus years of keeping it to myself. It only happened that once. It wasn't scary until I touched it and it was a real thing. That's the only time my heart was racing. It was quite a Zen vibe, to be fair, until the point I realised this thing was actually in my room. And then young me freaked out a bit. I think about it every Christmas and wonder what it could have been. Wow. Wow. I I didn't even know how I'd react if that happened. How old was he? He said about seven. seven. Yeah, seven or eight. That's incredible. I I can't believe he said it was a Zen vibe until the point where he'd like, if there was some, even on Christmas, if there was something, some big guy in my room who just turned up, I would be back under the covers, scared stiff immediately. (laughs) The thing is, though, this is what people find from their fairy experiences. People think I'd be absolutely terrified if that happened to me. And I think I would have said the same. But honestly, it's 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 not like that unless they are really scary and horrible. It's not like that. It's, it is a really natural feeling. It's like seeing something really amazing in nature and then just going, wow, it's like there's that connection and there's a there's an innate knowing in us as human beings. So when we see something of wonder, we know if it's really scary, obviously, but we know when it's just something really wonderful that's just we can properly be in awe of that kind uh, of mind. Can you imagine if it turned out that there was a Santa, how how great that would be? 
well, this is a thing. It's made my Christmas, honestly, because I, you know, being a mum, I've always thought, oh, well, if you say to the, you know, I've had to go through it twice with my old ones, getting to the point where they'll say, mum, is he real? And then at that point, they kind of know he's not. And I'll say, no, he's not. Mm. This is when they're sort of 11 or whatever. I always had the feeling that I was pretending for my parents, to be honest. Like there was all, they they were just a bit too, yes, Santa is real. And we don't put the the presents under the tree at all. They're a bit too sort of, you know, tongue in cheek about it. So when it got to that stage, it was like, do do I do I keep on pretending that I'm believing them? Because I they they've never been serious about it. Yeah, I had to sit my parents down and say, Mum, Dad, I think I'm old enough now. I know there's no Santa. It was role reversal. Yeah. That'll be great. That's really sweet. To be honest, I listened to that story and I thought, wow, this would make a great cold open for a horror movie. Yeah. But that's my brain. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much this, uh, the how Violent Night starts, isn't it? I've already seen the trailer. It wasn't going to be long before I brought up David Harbour. Yes, I know, because you've already done it twice before we started recording. <laughs> Joe wasn't in the room when I swooned. I have a thing for Santa, Joe. I haven't but seen This Violent... is a newly discovered thing that Bethan's talked about endlessly. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's ruined my view of Santa, seeing David Harbour as the man in red. You don't come back to... from that. I'm going to have to look this up now. Hang on. What about you, Icy? Have you ever had any Santa experiences or what was it? Did your parents pretend to be Santa or did they ever? They did. And there was quite a famous a famous time when uh, my mum and dad had to wrap a present up for, I think it was a neighbour. And my brother, I don't remember this, but they, they tell the story. And my brother apparently went, eee, we've got the same wrapping paper as Santa. <laughs> oh, I oh, oh, no. And I think I think David took a little bit longer to cotton on. Um, oh, that's brilliant. I don't I don't remember how I discovered that it was me mum and dad or how old I was. I, I honestly can't remember. But I do remember it used to be a really big tradition to go into town to see Fenix windows because they'd always like the department store would always put these windows there. Got a Fenix too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you would queue for hours to look at some windows and then go and sit on Santa's knee and tell him what you wanted. And I just love the idea of going and doing that now and sitting on his knee. And if he was like, so little girl, what would you like for Christmas? <laughs> Not sure you'd necessarily be able to bring his Robert Pattinson, but you know, hope's pretty <laughs> What would you wish for, Joe, if you were sat on Santa's knee? Um, oh, I'm gonna have to have a think about that. I'm thinking, yeah, a lie down in a, a dark room, not with Santa. Oh, well. Just, just I you might change just, your mind after watching the trailer. We'll yeah, come but, back to that. I Bethan's think wish maybe would be with Santa. Retreat, a spa retreat away from everything. Well, that does sound good as well. I was actually pictured sitting on Santa's knee on the in, in the, the local paper, Jersey Evening Post. So it must have been about nineteen eighty. Uh, sitting on his knee and um yeah it must have been the the they had a photographer from the newspaper there it was me and another little girl one on each knee i have to I have to find that probably not allowed to sit on santa's knee now are they no i, don't I just think, think so. imagine if you were the awkward kid who was like i would like an end to capitalism santa like what would he do <laughs> that would that would be me because <laughs> you was you asked like oh what would your wish to santa would be i'd be like oh it'd be an end to the tories <laughs> <laughs> I think I could, I think Santa could could sort that. I reckon. I think he could. He could. Just drop him on ten Downing Street. <laughs> well, after uh, we have we have got access to a Santa because Owen from Time Between Times has just done a massive stint as Santa, so we could ask him for his weirdest request. I think Ben Pates also did a, a stint as Santa at Colchester Castle recently. I've just yeah, seen his Twitter as well. Yeah, and didn't your friend Dean do Magic uh, Dean? Yeah. 
My my friend Magic Dean has gone viral because he he's Santa and there's a, a really I I've never heard of him but he sounds really cool. He's a famous like influencer on TikTok. He's got Tourette's and he like records his journey and he went to see um, my friend Dean. Sorry, he went to see Santa. Dean Dean's just the nicest person. Like this big burly welsh guy living in colchester and he was so funny like he, some of the things that i think his name was jack was saying because he pointed to the snow and said oh is that cocaine it just came out and then gene just went oh, oh, oh got that kind of christmas and you they, they ended up laughing together it was lovely it's gone viral and we just love dean allen jones he is awesome and he he listens to the he listens to all our shows so he'll get a real kick out of that oh hello dean <laughs> hey dean do you wanna do you wanna ply us with some Essex? Do you wanna do we wanna get scary now? Yes. That's always yes. <laughs> after after Joe's brilliant story, that was very heartwarming. Well, you could be the crown terrify to you. Santa. <laughs> well, I can I can say to to slide you into that next section, there is a kind of Santa Essex situation uh, that was a 2013 trauma over Canvey Island double Santa sighting, right? Oh. Now, it's very silly though. <laughs> Father Christmas was told to leave a town centre over fears children would be traumatised by the sight of two Santas in the same street. So there was a bit of a kickoff because there were two people dressed as Santa in the street and it, oh my it God. made the paper. A, ta- a town council officer told us we had to take our Santa away as the Rotary Club Santa had arrived at the other end of Christmas Market round the corner. There's your film. <laughs> There's your Christmas film. That, that is a celebrity death battle of the Santas. We all want <laughs> the Rotary Club versus the Council Santa. <laughs> Richard Curtis, if you're listening, you, next year's sorted. Hilarious. <laughs> Who would play the Santas? David Harbour would have to be one of them. Yeah, David Harbour versus was it Richard Curtis who did the other? Well, Billy Bob Thornton played him in yeah. Bad Santa. Santa. Yeah, that was re- that's a really good film. There we go. We'll we'll, we'll pit them against each other on Canvey Island. <laughs> And then Canvey Island suddenly becomes American for no good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do we want to hear about a very haunted street? Yeah. So the Royal Terrace, which overlooks the Thames Estuary, is one of the oldest streets in South End. It dates back to around the 1700s. It was originally called the Grand Terrace when it was first built, but it was subsequently renamed the Royal Terrace in honour of Princess Caroline, the Prince Regent's wife, who's visited in about 1803, because if you go somewhere, they rename it Royal something. (laughs) This area appears to have several ghost stories associated with, with it. There's one terrifying account of a leprous, I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly because I kept on saying it lecherous earlier. Um, Very different thing. It's really hard to differentiate between those sounds. A leprous ghost that appears. And this story comes from a handwritten journal that was passed down through the years until it was published in the Essex Chronicle. And the name of the journal is brilliant. It was Miss Warren's Essex Ghost Book. And I've been looking for this Miss Warren since then and I can't find her, but she she sounds like the sort of person that we'd all want to hang out with. Yeah. <laughs> but because the account is handwritten, it's difficult to tell whether this incident took place in number one, seven or nine of the Grand Terrace. And the account of the haunting came from a Mr. Martin who was staying at the terrace sometime between 1887 and 1893. He described one night how the flickering candle in his room suddenly guttered and the sound of loud clattering filled the room. The temperature dropped significantly and a pair of 
livid eyes, in his words, full of pain and and utmost devilry, appeared in front of him. Mr. Martin cried out, who are you? What do you want? But the apparition disappeared immediately. So Mr. Martin, the next day, questioned his landlord and found out this wasn't the first time that this apparition had appeared, but he was the first person to ever stay in the room after seeing it. Everyone else had run away screaming. So I don't know if Mr. Martin was very brave or very stupid, but he decided to stay another night in that room. And the identical uh, situation occurred. But this time he got to see the apparition's face very clearly. Had a protruding forehead, dark hair, dark eyebrows, two yellow swollen eyelids and cheeks of a purple hue surrounded by a white sickly substance. And the face stared out of the gloom, glistening unhealthily in the candlelight for a few moments before disappearing again. I mean, you don't want to see your ghost glistening, do you? Not with a white substance all over it. Mm-hmm. Glistening ghost would be a great pub name, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Isn't it? So, according to Miss Warren, who took the account from Mr. Martin, after some further investigation, she found out that some 20 years before, a man had died of leprosy in that room. But it's not the only place he appears. Not too far from the Royal Terrace stands Clifton Court, on the corner between Royal Court and Royal Terrace. Many years after Mr. Martin's ghastly encounter, a young couple moved into the once imposing Clifton Court in around 1966 to 67. They did not stay long, however, because they encountered a very similar apparition to the one seen by Mr. Martin. It appeared twice, once in November and once in March the following year, and it appeared at the end of their bed, draped in a grey cowl, and the room became icy when the phantom appeared, but it disappeared just as quickly, leaving behind an unpleasant, earthy smell. So after the second time this happened, the couple called in a vicar to exorcise the room. However, even after the exorcism was performed, the room felt uncomfortable and the couple quickly moved out. And just to tie this to the next part, just behind the Royal Terrace, there's another street called the Royal Muse. On this street in 1988, a man called Tonio Perrot bought a home that desperately needed renovations. He hired an architect who decided to remove an interior wall in the property. But when the wall came down, a very ghastly discovery was made. A small room was discovered about five bricks deep, and inside that room was the wheel of an old wagon. And on that wheel was a skeleton draped over it, held together by the fabric of its clothes that still remained. The police were called and the body was taken away. And the case remains a mystery to this day. But after that discovery, Tonio became aware of the ghost of an old man haunting his house. And the old man said to carry his walking stick out in front of him. Um, Tonio claims that the ghost doesn't have any ill intentions, so he's happy to live alone with him despite the first appearance of this man giving Antonio and his wife quite a fright. There is another presence, however, in this house who appears at certain times, a dark shape that can be seen out the corner of your uh, of your eye and precedes a great drop in temperature, like our leprous ghost that's also mm. seen in Clifton Court. One psychic who visited the house said that the dark shape is a man with a deformed hand and a degenerative disease. So could this be the same phantom? The most spectacular occurrence in this area occurs on Christmas Eve every year, just before midnight. Tonio and his friends have even made an annual tradition out of it. Before midnight, Tonio will gather everyone in the street and they only have to wait a couple of minutes before they can hear the sounds of horses on cobblestones, even though the street is now tarmacked. They can also hear the calls of a coachman and even the scent of the sweat of horses 
and manure and it's like being taken back into that time period. The scene only lasts a few moments before the noise heads towards the high street. It seems that Tonio's tradition of gathering his friends on the street to witness the event is more than just for fun. Tonio believes that the energy of the people gathered in the street actually allows the spectacle to happen. Is anyone else thinking what I'm thinking? What are you thinking? Let's go. Yeah, it sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like a great night out. Do you know where it is and when it is? Yes, it's on the Royal Muse. It will be on the 24th of December, a few minutes to midnight. So I, I'm not encouraging people to go swarming the Royal Muse in Southend. In fact, <laughs> please, please don't, because I think that would probably get us in big trouble. But <laughs> I do have another phantom coach that appears on Christmas Eve. This one appears in Havering in Essex. And the carriage has a famous occupant, one Abigail Masham, whose home once stood in Havering. Abigail was a close confidant of Queen Anne and cousin to Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough. If you've seen The Favourite, you already know who I'm talking about. I believe that Abigail was played by Emma Stone. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. And then Sarah was Rachel Weiss, and the Queen was Olivia Coleman. So, you know, great combination. So her carriage is said to appear driving through the, the high street every Christmas, which seems to be a lovely time of year for ghosts to take a joyride. I've, I've found several carriages that like to start up around Christmas Eve. <laughs> so that's my first Essex ghost story this evening. Well, I think you started with a bloody good one. Yeah, I love that royal An immurement. Is it immurement? Immurement. Immurement. On a wheel. Is that what they call finding a, a, a desiccated body on a wheel? No, I, yeah, behind a wall. So you ah, okay. immured, immured, either immured or immured. I don't know, but nasty <laughs> way to go. It sounds like that first fella knew what he was doing because those two questions, who are you and what do you want? Hmm. Sounds like he might have known. Been what prepared. He was doing there. Yeah. Well, maybe he was kind of into it. And then <clears throat> when he got the opportunity to stay another night, he did. Mm. Would you? Oh, it depends on the vibe. I mean,. I keep, I've said that to my husband, should we go and do, you know, like a, an overnight ghosty thing? Cause he's, he loves anything to do with ghosts and hmm. any mysteries, but then he, if something's going to happen on the film, he, he pretends he needs loo and runs out of the room and it's cause he doesn't want to see the point where there's a boo moment, you know, hmm. so, the jump scare. Yeah, exactly. The jump scare. He's just, he jumps a mile in the air if something happens. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he, if he would accompany me, but, um, I think it would be fun. As long as it wasn't horrible. I wouldn't want to stay anywhere where there was a bad vibe, you know, if it was... Well, they're threatening. turning the, the cage in St. Osith near us into an Airbnb. We're eagerly awaiting that one, aren't we, Elsa? Yeah, I definitely want to go stay there. Mm. Would, would you all go and stay at that one then, do you think? I would no, stay anywhere not. if there was supposed to be ghosts involved. I see. Didn't you have a Essex ghost experience? I did, yes. It was, oh, was it at the Globe Inn or something? All I know is it's on the main bus route from like Colchester Station to the university. Yes, I know it well, yeah. And, and it was a, uh, it was obviously like looking at it from the outside. It was quite clearly a coaching in at some stage and it, and it's in its lifetime. And, um, and because obviously living in Newcastle and trying to get to Colchester isn't the easiest thing to do sort of in one day. And the fact that I needed to be at the university like nine o'clock in the morning. Um, I decided to stay over the night before and I remember I got to the, the place and obviously they put me up on the top floor and you could tell because obviously the ceilings get lower and, and everything like that. Clearly this would have been either cheap accommodation or servants accommodation at some point in the past. And uh, so I went in, got myself all settled and everything. And I remember it was a Thursday because Mock the Week was on. 
<laughs> the weird details that you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was sort of just pottering about in my room, sort of getting ready for bed. And I could hear this like weird noise in the hall. And it sounded like someone who, like I remember back in the day before people had wheels on suitcases and, um, and you know, you'd sometimes hear people like literally just dragging the bags along the floor. And that's where it sounded like. So I went to the door to see if somebody needed a hand and it opened the door and there was no one there. And even weirder, it, it sounded like someone had been dragging it along a wooden floor, except it was like that fake faux marble. Mm. Um, I said fake twice there, but you know what I mean? Sort of tiled floor. And I was kind of like, okay. And then just shut the door because I was like, whatever, I've got to get up early in the morning. And it's amazing how many like supernatural things I'll ignore if I've got stuff to do. And then it was like I was sort of like lying in bed, sort of watching the telly. And all of a sudden, I think I was obviously hoping to go to sleep. And all of a sudden, there was this really loud sort of knock on the bedside table next to us. And I was like, what? That wasn't me. And that also wasn't furniture settling as well. And uh, and I thought, because I... the the room hasn't changed temperature like you know what I mean it's not like in the middle of the night when when that stuff happens and then the knocking happened on like each of the bits of furniture going around the room a couple like a couple of knocks on every piece of wooden furniture background with the first one then round again now it's went like oh like may may have sworn I was like I've got to be up early in the morning I haven't got time for this <laughs> and uh, like there was a definite sort of shift in vibe in the room like whatever like whoever or whatever it was is kind of like whatever then and then it sort of it, it left and then I went to sleep and then obviously the next morning went off to the university to register and thought no more about it but so it always kind of makes me wonder if it was a coaching in who or what was dragging what outside in the corridor and who or what was trying to get my attention and the fact that I was clearly not the most receptive guest <laughs> in the building but yeah I think I love that you were just like oh not tonight like yeah <laughs> like the most effective exorcist ever <laughs> There was another time I was actually in John Knox's house in Edinburgh and uh, we're in this room with like wood paneling and I suddenly felt someone like pushing down on my shoulders and I just went, hey, no touching because I really hate people <laughs> touching us. And I just kind of bellowed it into the room and there was this sort of like almighty bang off the wall, like someone had like hit the wall in Paddy and then like stormed out. And uh, and the guy I was with, like he was out of the room immediately, you know, and I was sort of standing there like, hey, you've been told. So I just kind of thought really like, you know, who knew I was going to grow up to become Buffy from Giles? <laughs> <gasps> you are so Buffy. <laughs> I really want to go on a ghost stunt with you, I see. I'm me, a Geordie Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Just yell and go away things. <laughs> we know. <laughs> oh, we're kind of with some great... We, we, we should get some like commission for this. There's too many good ideas for TV programmes and films being bandied around. If we, if we start seeing TV programmes based off the, these ideas that we're, uh, we're going to have to start suing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So Bethan or Icy, which one wants to go next? I don't mind. Neither do I. We're too polite. <laughs> yeah. I know I've just Bethan. said we're too polite now. I'm the one who's been like telling ghosts to go away. So Bethan, be a good host and go next. I'll go next. <laughs> I have got some ghost stories and I've got some folklore, but I need to not retract. I need to make an addition to a story I told last year. So last year I talked about hunting the wren which is a lovely thing that happens in most parts of Wales, all of Wales on Christmas. And I talked about last year how they would get a wren and would kill it by spiking it on a holly bush and then taking it around. It was delightful. They also used to try and knock a squirrel out of a tree. So, you know, but no. The Christmas spirit. The Christmas spirit. No, apparently that's not all of Wales. That's just my weird neck of the woods. Because when I started to look at Wales as a whole, they caught the wren 
and put it in a case, took it round and let it sing and then let it go. So I'm sorry, rest of Wales. It's just Mick Morgan and us weirdos who like to kill it and take it round. So we now know the most violent place in Wales. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't mm-hmm. they also do it in Essex as well? We had a similar thing. Yeah, the, the hunting the wren. There's a similar. It's, it's was it a robin? We went a for? robin in in yeah. uh, in Essex, and then something somewhere. I think there's various bird variations, but I think we're the only one that kills it. Yeah, sorry. So that's that's done. I can go on to other nice things now because I did find a lovely thing that apparently still happens in places in Wales. And have you ever heard of Plygain? Well, you've heard of Midnight Mass. Okay. What the, oh, no, oh, do you know, you said Midnight Mass and I was... Not the TV immediately I was like, Mike Flanagan. Not Mike Flanagan. <laughs> the actual Mass at Midnight, where everyone's... Uh, it's by candlelight normally and you sing carols and it's it's very it's really nice, really uplifting, even if you're not um, Christian or particularly religious. There's something nice about it, very traditional. You know, you all walk home together or go to the pub beforehand and then the songs get quite gregarious because people have been to the pub. But there's another service that took place um 3 a.m. And this was what Ply Game was. This was Christmas morning, a festive tradition. This was took place in 19th century rural Wales and, as I said, still taking part in some other places. Whereas most people would uh, rise early for the service, there would be some that would stay awake throughout and then go out into the fields and into the villages and start singing. Now, traditionally, it would be a three or four-part harmony carols and then more people would join. It's mainly the men of the village, but um, then they go around, and then it would culminate at sunrise. So I think I think that that makes up for the well, not makes up for the robin and the, <laughs> and the um, the wren, but so uh, we can be nice. And they still do it at Tintern Abbey and uh, St David's Bishop's Palace. And then the day after Christmas, again, we're back to our pretty you know, weird stuff again. So we have one day of niceness and then the last person who's up on the day of Holming, which is the day after Christmas, is beaten with a holly sprig. How do they know they're the last person up if somebody else isn't up to see them? I think many people must get <laughs> Do they um, mean awake or up from It's the, the last booth? person to get out of bed in the morning. Ah, oh, okay. But it says here, thankfully now extinct. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's still doing that. But then we go back to another nice thing. See, we do horrible, weird things, and then we do some quite nice things. And we have a toffee evening, uh, Nosan Gifleif. So it was a traditional part of Christmas and New Year, and families would invite their friends around, and they would have supper and games and make a special toffee that would accompany storytelling, which I think sounds delightful. That's lovely. And That's what my dad does, actually. Oh, no, he doesn't tell stories. He just eats eats loads of toffee at Christmas. I would gather around to watch that. <laughs> just my Donkey. dad stuffing toffee. Yeah. <laughs> and then beating with Holly. <laughs> he's part Welsh, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Well, I think he's totally Welsh. I'm part Welsh. Oh, well, he's then to- he's totally Welsh without an accent. Um, I also found some some really lovely things from Castle Cork's kitchen. Have you seen Castle Cork? If you would have watched The Worst Witch on CITV when you were younger, that castle at the beginning. Um, And if you go towards Cardiff on the M4, it's that beautiful fairy tale castle um, up in the hills that you could just see down this valley. It's 
It's built on a site of an old castle, but it's actually Victorian built. It's a folly, really. It's a hunting lodge for Cardiff Castle. And apparently, oh, there's a, a free, uh, here you go, a free bit of folklore. There's a tunnel that uh, connects Castle Koch to Cardiff Castle, which I've tried to find on many occasions because apparently there's an X that marks a flagstone of the entrance to it. And there's eagles, giant eagles guarding a massive treasure down there. I should have known you'd find a tunnel for this episode. You know I'd put a tunnel in there if I could. <laughs> But uh, yeah, don't worry, I'll come back to tunnels, maybe. But th- this this um, story had loads of um, things that Lord and Lady Butte did whilst they lived there. And they had loads of little Christmas traditions throughout the period. So they had Iguichlai, which was um, it's the start of the three-week period. And that is when farm work was suspended. And as a symbol of this, the plough was carried to each home and placed... Um, it says under the table. Now, I don't know how big the table was or how small the plough was, but who knows? But uh, it was almost like it was laid to rest. Everyone would down tools and then they would drink beer and then they would wet the plough with the beer, which is a waste of beer in my opinion. But, you know, whatever gets you through the dark days. And then there was Gwich Istwith, which lasted 12 days. And that actually ended on the epiphany. But because it was such a lark, it actually went on a lot longer sometimes. And that was, again, just merriment and probably toffee eating as we see. It. It's it sounds a is it a bit like the um Lord of Misrule that we talked Saturnalia. about last time? Yes, yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. Probably the I think that's where it doesn't say here, but probably where the Mary Lloyd comes in as well, which is a folklore. I was gonna say, do you want to mention that? <laughs> no, I, I won't start an argument. But um, recently, the Mary Lloyd was discussed as a fake law, which um, it's not. As someone who took part in in the Mary Lloyd in Wales, but you know that that's it's okay. It made many Welsh people see with anger. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote to Michael Sheen and said, "Are you aware?" <laughs> he's just like he's our representative. Yeah, just generally. <laughs> just generally, I just love the man. Oh, yeah, he is amazing. Yeah, Have you seen the speech he did to the Welsh football team? No, I didn't. It made me want to invade Suffolk. It was like, I felt so Welsh. Just like this this red fury in my veins. I could have taken on anything afterwards. I'll send it to you. I will post a link on social media. Then everybody else can be fired up with the Welsh. Two more things. There was Thomasing. And this was um, on the 23rd of December and women would go from house to house to beg for flour. It's not exactly the most funnest thing in the world, but, you know, we've had a lot of partying going on here. So, you know, really shit Halloween, really shit Halloween. And then there was Sean Corn, spelt like your brother's name, Elsa. All right. That's Chimney Pot John and is literally translated as bloke that comes down the chimney. I always forget it means John, Sean. Yeah, it's, it's sort of our Welsh Father Christmas. It's, it says here, probably only goes as far back as the existence of chimney pots. But it might be where the chimney pot idea came from. The well. So there's like a little blurring of line of like, you know, did we invent the chimney pot thing? Which, yeah, you know, I'm just going to, no one's going to argue with me. We did. We did. I'm not going to attempt it. I will attempt. I will try and get down my chimney this Christmas. And I found this, this last little bit of folklore now, and then I'll hand over to someone else before I go back to my ghost stories. But I'll read it out in Welsh first, because it sounds wonderful in Welsh. It sounds so magical. And then the English translation is hilarious. So, Dydd calan yw i heddu, rydwi'n dyfod i eich traws i morfen am i gainiog, na'i grist a bara a chwaws, o dwch i drws i siriol. 
Hebnuid dim ochwez, Tin daudiz calanetto, be flower and Basically translated as today's the start of the new year. I've come to ask for some coins, crust, cheese. Uh, come to the door. You don't have to change your appearance. <laughs> Before the arrival of the next year, many of us will be dead. <laughs> Cheery. <laughs> Um, just a nice cheery wow. Welsh Christmas poem for you there. <laughs> I really like that. Sorry. <laughs> don't 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 make yourself look nice. <laughs> We'll be dead next year. That's brilliant. Oh no, I want that on a t-shirt. I was going to say that is absolutely t-shirt material, or at least a fridge magnet. I think when we get round to doing um, Erie Essex merchandise, that will be one of our first t-shirts. <laughs> Oh, it will. Just a special, a special Christmas one. Next year, there'll be a T-shirt out. <laughs> we'll send one to you, Joe, and you, I see. Hey, don't get ready. You'll be dead. <laughs> nice. Oh, bring us some Northumbrian stuff. I'm ready to go up north. I do actually have some Northumbrian folklore uh, for Christmas, and this comes from... Um, William Henderson's, oh, I can't remember the name of the title, because, you know, in the 19th century when everyone's the book title was like 20 words long. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, uh, to borrow the lawman's way of describing things, like William Henderson, friend of the podcast. And, yeah, I've no idea whether you'd like what I'm doing or not, but I'm going to assume he would, because I quote them loads. I think he um, <laughs> But uh, one of the things, apparently, it was customary for people <laughs> to do um, up, up our way, thankfully that doesn't happen now, is that an old woman would carry figures of Jesus and Mary from house to house on Christmas Eve singing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. I don't know if she was allowed to sing anything else uh, <laughs> or if it was just that, but there we go. Just one um, woman? Yeah. That's, that's a tall order. And I don't know if it was the same one every year. It was just this particular... And imagine it's like, okay, now you're old enough to be the old woman with the figures. I mean, how much of a slap in the face would that be? <laughs> like, Merry Christmas, you're old enough to be the old woman. Now go and do your work, you old bat. <laughs> <laughs> and then in Yorkshire, um, uh, obviously further south from me obviously people uh children would actually carry the figure through the west riding and they would line them they'd actually carry them in boxes that would be lined with spice oranges and sugar which sounds a lot more fun and then of course you get all the thing around like mummers at christmas and one of the things that made me laugh when you mentioned the mary lloyd before because i was just waiting for the it's not fake law thing because william henderson mentions it and given his book was out in like 1879 and there seems to be this weird misapprehension that if something is considered new it's it's fair clause like that that's not the definition because apparently in the north of england mummers would carry an image of a white horse so not the bone horse but they would carry an image of a white horse mm. and he does mention the mary lloyd as it but he does say that it, it's distinct from the northern version and he actually thinks that our version uh, was representing the wild hunt instead because of obviously when you consider all the many Viking invasions, uh, which will tie in with one of the ghost stories that I've got. But in the, in our case, as, as, as Henderson understood it, um, the leader of the mummers stood in for Odin and the white horse was Sleipnir, which in my view is, is awesome. Um, but I just mm-hmm. thought it was really cool that Henderson was like, oh, yes, I know what the Mary Lloyd is. And I'm like, and you were writing in 1879, so... And you're a folklorist and you're talking about it. People can stick things in their pipes. 
<laughs> and the other thing that I thought was really cute, I don't know if you've heard of this particular English belief anyway, so it's like the whole country was that the bees hummed Christmas hymns on Christmas Eve. Um, and I just love that. Which one? I don't know. Hopefully it wasn't God Rest Him, Gentleman, because that one's covered. But apparently people in Northumberland actually used to go out to see if they could hear it happening. <laughs> I just think that's brilliant. Uh, that you have like people a modern like version. Oh, they're, they're singing Wizard. <laughs> Slade. <laughs> oh, imagine if they got Whamageddon with the bees. <gasps> oh. uh, if it, that's another film. No, we've taken that. Bees singing Whamageddon. <laughs> I must admit, and this is completely irrelevant to folklore, but I, I co-authored a book about how body parts are, are gothic in film and literature, and I had the heart, and I was so chuffed that I managed to get a reference to Last Christmas into oh. the heart chapter in the introduction, because it's a bit of a weird concept of someone like physically, like, I'm like, do you physically give your heart to someone? Because then if it's the very next day they give it away, they give your heart to someone else. Oh. What were they going to do with it? Would you <laughs> consider... <laughs> Would you consider Whamageddon a new folklore, a new folk custom? It's a new Christmas custom. Um, my dad actually got involved this year because I, I explained the custom to him and he came and he went, I fell in battle, you'll have to go on without it. And my mom was like, what? <laughs> I'm still going. I haven't been Whamageddon yet. <laughs> How? You were out drinking in town. I have no idea. I mean, I went to... Uh, where was it? The brew house. They're not the type who play um, Wham. In fact, they they played the entirety of Rumours twice whilst I was there. Well, I, I told the the guys in the office. It was just Ron and um, and I told them and I said uh, I told they'd never heard of Whamageddon and Nathan came in for security and they were all they were all giggling and I said right, I'm going to nip to the loo. And then when I came back, they had it on blasting <laughs> just to get me. Blasting. <laughs> But it's okay now. I've fallen, so then we blasted it out the window and then just watched people going, no, across the university squares. <laughs> I was I was going through uh, Phoenix Food Hall and the, the lasses in the, on the florist counter were listening to it and I was like, damn you, as I went past. Because oh. uh, I had heard it on the 23rd of November, which I think was excessively early. Um, oh yeah, it starts December 1st But that was the thing, Holly Elson from the Centre of Folklore, Myth and Magic was like No, 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 you, you've respawned, you're back in the game and it starts <laughs> on December the 1st um, And then yeah, so I lasted until Monday so it's like, uh. um, But I did have one final piece of, of Northern Folklore Because to me this just sums up my neck of the woods And yeah, uh, one, of the, one of the things that you could potentially have as a, as a visit Most people have carol singing and things like that uh, we had sword dancers, and this was quite common between the Cheviots in the north right down to the Humber in the south. And the dancers and the songs that they would perform were different depending on what location they were in, but they would still do them. And I have actually seen a sword dance performed in a pub, and it was, oh God, it must have been a few years ago, and I was on a first date with someone, and they, these people just trooped into the pub like and did the whole thing with the swords, and then like just stood at the bar drinking. It was the weirdest thing to see out of nowhere. <laughs> so that that it, as far as first dates go, that was quite cool to happen. He didn't plan it, obviously, because that would have been even cooler. But it was uh, it was such like a northern sort of custom to just see people dancing with swords. And Henderson thinks that it actually came from the war dances of the Danish and Saxon invaders that then sort of settled settled here. And because apparently. He'd found a, a, an account by another folklorist who had talked about uh, the sword dance of the Goths and the Swedes, and that apparently had allusions to Odin in it. And the performance involved nine people, and I just think the idea of nine people dancing with swords, you would think it would be a health and safety nightmare. 
yeah, in a pub in an enclosed space of lots yeah, well, of people I drinking. Think, I don't think they did it in pubs. That was just oh, like okay. what I saw. But and and the pub they did it in is not very wide. But in general, they would they would go to door to door and do it. And apparently, you would have five people danced. One person would carry clothes, so they would have like costume changes throughout. Two people played clowns. And one person played the fiddle. And apparently the characters differed. So you would sometimes get like in sort of Newcastle and Sunderland, you had a sailor and a skipper would appear. Because obviously we were both, we, Newcastle and Sunderland are both ports, but they're not in the Durham one, which is obviously quite landlocked. So mm. it, uh, it must have been fascinating to to see people doing the rounds. And people must have been fit to do that several times of an evening to just kind of start dancing with swords but I, I just love the way henderson just has this thing about yes this this is because of the vikings this is because of the vikings constantly so he's, he's obviously uh, he's obviously fascinated by the history of the area and it is quite cool to just think i'm so glad people don't do that now because i can just imagine our facebook community group would go wild if there was people running around with swords knocking on people's doors <laughs> it beats like the usual there's another pothole or <laughs> who's letting off fireworks <laughs> I think a few years ago in Colchester, we had somebody running around with a, mach- with a machete in the street. So um, I don't know how they'd feel about swords. I suppose we have. But a, they didn't like the machete. We have the Gimp Man of Essex. Yes, he followed us on Twitter recently. He did. I was so excited about that. <laughs> but he has a he has a, a copycat. Does he? There's been a whole hoo ha about it. I had no yeah, we idea. have a gimp man. I'd try to think, well, he waves around. <laughs> exactly what you'd assume a gimp man to wear. I think there's wear. also, um, there's, I think I've talked about this before, but I think there's also a man who dresses up as, uh, he basically just like, it's just like plants. It's like a, a walking a green lawn. man. Yeah, it's basically, it's a green man. I, I've seen it before, but I can't, I keep on meaning to look this up, but he does you walk around. Bush. Sorry? You see his little bush. I think he is a little bush. That's what he's meant to be. But <laughs> I've got to find out more about that because it keeps on coming up recently. And I, I keep on remembering it and going, I know that's from somewhere, but I can't think where I've seen it. Is that May Day then? When, when is it just generally he's walking around like that? Or? I think he goes and plants things. Okay. Himself. <laughs> he just digs a hole and then gets in. We had that guy from Bristol who was walking around with wasn't it wasn't it like a cardboard box on his head or something? What's that guy doing? That's just Bristol that for you. It is generally <laughs> that is Bristol. We we do eccentric people really really well down here, which is why I feel very comfortable in Bristol. And Northumberland sounds immense. I see. It just further highlights the fact that we need a folklore roadshow on BBC. We'll get a double decker bus and we'll go around everywhere and look at all the new and the old and the 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 lost folk traditions and get involved with them and it would be awesome and the thing is we do still have some of them like obviously the tall barrels of allendale i think it is Mm. um and things like that so some of them still happen and uh yeah we've we've got we've got all sorts of got vampires we've got fairies obviously we've got the brown men of the moors who will eat you you know yeah definitely come visit yeah that that had to be like a whole season on the show (laughs) like, <laughs> just the north. <laughs> can I bring you back down to Essex for a moment? You can. I've got a very tiny story, and I've got a much more in-depth story. And I know Beth and you've got some more. You've got some Welsh ghost stories, haven't you? I have. So maybe I should do my long story first, yeah. and then I'll leave my tiny little story to the end. Mm-hmm. So I know I said I'm bringing you back down to Essex, and don't have a go at me, but this one doesn't actually quite take place in Essex. What? But it does involve the Earl of Essex. Oh, yes, right. 
I'm talking about Jeffrey de Mandeville. Now, I, I have actually spoken about good old Jeff before. The last time we met him was in our Buried Treasure episode, and he was more of a side note. Honestly, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda should write a musical about Jeff. He was a very interesting character. He was a very ambitious, scheming, and rebellious earl. And a merry old soul he definitely was not. So the last time I mentioned him was in connection to Pleshy Castle, which was one of his holdings. And he played a very ingenious game of switching between Stephen and Matilda during the, the Age of Anarchy in 1135 to 53. And he truly played them back and forth, getting assurances from Matilda of titles he would hold for helping her and growing ever more powerful as Stephen gave him more and more titles for his support. King Stephen was a eventually advised to put the Earl of Essex down before he got so powerful he could easily topple him off the throne, which seems to be really short-sighted that he just kept on giving him more and more power to the point where Stephen became so weak he couldn't actually take Geoffrey down himself. So, But he did wait for a year after he got this advice and it was around the end of September in St Albans when Geoffrey, who was attending court, was openly accused of treason by some of his rivals. And he treated the charges with cynical contempt, apparently. However, he was still arrested by the king after a violent struggle. And under threat of being hanged, he was forced to surrender his castles at Pleshy and Saffron Walden. But the worst one was he was forced to surrender the Tower of London, which was his true source of power. For some god-unknown reason, he was then freed. I believe somewhere that his father-in-law turned up and surrounded the area with his men, demanding to let Jeff go. So... Off Geoffrey went, teaming up with his brother-in-law, William de Say, to sack the Fenlands. And he absolutely terrorised the area, plundering as he went, and eventually took the Isle of Ely. Then from there, at his base, he seized Ramsey Abbey, which he fortified and then made his new headquarters. And it was claimed by one chronicler, Henry of Huntingdon, that during his occupation of the abbey, blood exuded from the walls of the church and the cloister adjoining, witnessing the divine indignation. So obviously he didn't really treat it with respect when he took it over. He seized the gold and uh, silver altar vessels, the copes of the cantors, I'm not sure what those are, uh, which were interwoven with precious stones and all kinds of other ornamentation from the church, and then sold them off at a very low price to anyone who was willing to buy them so he could pay his men to go off and do more plundering. And guess what? The Pope doesn't like it when you sell off his valuables to pay your soldiers, so Jeff got himself excommunicated. And there were any number of offences that he would... Were ch- he was charged with as well, including torture, robbery, and ransoming people when he was terrorizing the Fenlands. And he managed to carry on like this for some time because K- King Stephen was in such a weak position and didn't have the power to put him down. But Geoffrey eventually met his end in August 1144 at Burwell Castle whilst laying siege to it. A stray arrow pierces his skull, but it does take him a month to die. However, since he's excommunicated, he can't receive a Christian burial. So the Knights Templar cast off his body to London and according to one source, encase his body in a lead water pipe and hang it from a tree in their orchard until he's allowed to be buried. Now, after such a life, you'd almost expect Geoffrey to have a ghost story. And lucky for us, it's a Christmas ghost story. The first reported sighting took place... The first reported sighting took place a week before Christmas in 1926. Mr. Gibson, a watchman guarding the roadworks in Church Hill, was minding his own business when a ghost loomed towards his fire. As the ghost grew nearer, Mr. Gibson made out the free wearing armour and a cloak, which in one account says it's black and another account says it's red. Now, for 1926, this is pretty outlandish attire. 
But what really set the figure apart was that it was a walking skeleton. Mr. Gibson quite rightly ran off and went to his employer to say that he wouldn't be taking on that duty anymore unless they paid him an extra shilling. This led to a council investigation into the ghost sighting, which revealed to them a plethora of reported nightly activities by Geoffrey de Mandeville. One homeless man reported seeing the skeleton rise out of the ground like he was coming out of a drain. A few housewives reported hearing clattering and banging out in the street and even inside their own houses and they were certain it was caused by Geoffrey de Mandeville. People who lived on the street claimed that they they knew he was about because their dogs would become scared stiff. The councillors decided to conduct a vigil at the roadworks to see if there was any truth to these claims. Though they did not see Jeff materialise in front of them, they did feel the rumble of the ground beneath them as though someone was on horseback galloping by. And there wasn't a tube line underneath. It was way, way away from the, uh, any tube station. But hunting Jeff became a popular pastime for errant ghost hunter- hunters around East Barnet after this. And at one point, 400 people gathered along the street around Christmas just to see if he would turn up. But the next sighting wouldn't take place until Christmas Eve 1932, when a group of people met at a bridge over Pimsbrook in East Barnet at midnight and heard uncanny sounds and followed them until they reached Monk's Frith, where the sighting they had been hoping for took place. The first thing they saw was a spectral hound running towards them. And a few minutes later, a knight followed clad in armour that gleamed silver in the moonlight and a red cloak. So it seems that Geoffrey de Mandeville's ghost will only appear every six years in person around Christmas, though many other reported phenomena take place in the meantime. It has been speculated that he's due to make his next appearance this Christmas. So he carries out Peeled in East Barnet for the ghost of the rebel Earl of Essex and his headless hound. Sorry, I really when he was due again. So this year. It's this year, yeah, around East Barnet. I really struggle getting through that one. I don't know what's going on with my... Uh, it was like blurring out in front of me. <laughs> I wonder if anyone has that on their 2022 bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Demandable. Yeah. That's a great name as well. I really like him as a character. He just seems like he was just... I don't want to... The phrase I'm thinking of is too rude to say, but he was like a an effort and find out person. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a scallywag. He was a scallywag, yes. Rascal. <laughs> I do think the Manuel should do a musical about him, though. Another idea. Copyright Elsa. <laughs> Joe, do you have any stories? Any West Country stories? Um, well, I mean, the, the big thing around these parts is the wassailing, which, of course, is sort of usually after... Uh, Christmas it's usually kind of early January and there's some great wassail wassail events uh around here all over the west country that's where they step out into you know the orchard we've actually got a, a apple tree in our garden so we've done this one year you go out there with your pots and pans or your whistles and you bang your pots and pans because it's kind of waking up the waking up the tree so that it, it you know produces a lot of fruit that year oh that's and lovely yeah, yeah. And there's an orchard just near here. It was an old burial site at one point. It was an old, um, yeah, it was some kind of old burial site. And they, the community got permission to, you know, buy it from the council. And um, it's now community run orchard. So we went to a really lovely one there one year and lots of carols, you know, songs and, and but most importantly, drinking lots of hot mild cider. Mm. That's excuse? actually... um. I saw there was a program on the other day. I think it was a French tradition that people would go out to the 
the apple orchards and pour this year's cider around the trees to yeah. ensure that there would be a good crop for next year. Yeah, that's right. That that would be involved in it as well. And some of the, the ritual ceremonies here, a libation to the tree, to maybe to, to it as, maybe to the beings of the tree. That's what I would do if I was putting it there. But yeah, it's basically to the tree to, you know, as a, as a libation and a thanks. And um, so, yeah, a lot of that goes on. And in one that we went to, again, just very... In our, in our local area, very close by, they hung um, toast on the tree as well. Get pieces of, of bread and toast and kind of um, hang them onto the tree. So for the birds, and but at that again, it's kind of a, an act of giving and an encouragement to the tree to produce. So that's, um, lovely. that's always nice. There was, uh, I've just, I've got a really lovely old book here. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, that's a beautiful old book. It is. It's lovely. Um, English Folk Rhymes. And um, when was this published? Let's have a quick look. 1892. There we are. So this is lovely. In De- So this is from, they've taken it from the Christmas book. Christmas in the olden time. As you say, I see about 20 words for it to the title. Christmas in the olden time, its customs and their origin. 1839. So in Devonshire, after partaking of hot cake and cider, still there with the cider, the cake before it is eaten being dipped in the liquor. So they obviously dip their cake in the hot cider and eat the cake. Then the folks proceed to the orchard. A piece of the moistened cake is deposited in a fork of the tree and the cider is thrown over the latter. The men dis- discharge firearms and the women sing bare blue apples and pears in our barnfuls bagfuls well it'll be enough enough (laughs) it must be enough right now um barnfuls bagfuls sackfuls hooray 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 and it's they say in some places it's um observed on new year's eve so it's kind of that's that's pretty wasaily that sounds good fun yeah. If it was mulled cider, that sounds even better. I mean, you know, that just makes every Christmas celebration better, doesn't it? Makes me a lot of cider. Like- and cheese. If you go to any of the good ones down here, there's also excellent cheese around. So you've sold it to us now. Cool. Yeah, we're coming for that cheese. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bethan, did you want to do your Welsh ghost story that you wanted to tell? Yeah, I've got I've got a couple of little ones. I went on, of course, where we all start our research probably looking on the old paranormal database, especially as they've got a lovely section for Christmas. So I just thought, I wonder if there's any Welsh ones in there. And they didn't disappoint. And there was a couple. Um, they're only little. I have got a longer one from my favourite book, which I'll share with you in a moment. But there was one in, as a Welsh person, I still struggle to get my tongue around this one. So bear with. Pont Urith Fendi Guide, which is um, in Dovid and it's Strata, Florida. It's on the former site of the Old Abbey. And this is reoccurring on the 25th of December. There's a phantom devotee who of God who returns once a year because he's desperately trying to rebuild the altar that was destroyed. And all throughout the year, legends say that you can see candles being lit throughout the um, abbey or the abbey ruins and hear music from the ruins. But I just like the fact that there's this poor little poor little guy that comes back once a year desperately to fix the altar and has gone again, <laughs> like this sort of continual loop. And... It's a very slow game of Jenga very slow game of Jenga <laughs> or like that, that Greek myth you know some who is it that was pushing the boulder oh. up the hill Sisyphus yes that one very similar and then we go over to Gwynedd in Harag Slider 
which is, translates as the robber's stone. And there's so many stones in Wales. I think what lot either stones that get wet for no reason out of nowhere, or a stone that can't keep still and goes for a wander. We do like wandering stones, and this one is particular to Christmas night, and it happens on midnight. Um, oh, the stone is actually supposed to be a thief who stole a Bible. And once he stole the Bible, it was turned into this stone while he was carrying the Bible over his shoulder. And if you look at the the shape of it, it does look a little bit like someone carrying something over their shoulder. Uh, and every Christmas, the stone runs three times around the field. Yeah, and that's it. To what end? Who knows? But and I don't know whether it's Widdershins or clockwise, but there you go. Just one of our many stones that uh, are around a field, which happens a lot. But most ghost stories, especially from where um, I come from in Glamorgan, very often involve treasure. Now, when we looked up treasure for our Eerie Essex episode, there was a lot. And I was gutted that I, could, I, could, I knew that Wales was just full of them. I mean, you can't move the treasure ghosts. And I got, this is the book that started it all. I showed it before we hit the record button. This is The Folklore of Glamorgan by Alan Roderick. And I found this, this is the first ever folklore book I ever bought. And it was on the floor of a secondhand bookshop and it was covered in dust. No one had looked at it. So I was intrigued. I picked it up and I bought it and I've never looked back. I just, well, yeah, it's been folklore all the way. And it's also um, Owen and I with our podcast Spectre of the Sea. We get a lot of our stories from here because we're currently going along with the Morgan Ghost. So thank you, Alan, wherever you are. You're still around. You've given us a lot to lot to get our heads around. And I've picked a couple of couple of short stories. Uh, one, a lot of the time ghosts would have treasure that they hadn't been able to dispose of or pass on in their lives. And they've come back to haunt and try to reveal where the treasure is. Often they want it disposed of or thrown in a river. But there is the odd occasion where people get to keep it. But that's not very often. There's one story. This is Elspeth John. Elspeth John lived near the River Eli and was required to throw a hidden object around the beginning of the 19th century. Elspeth um, was born about 1795 and was sent to service at a farmer at Prisk near Cowbridge when she was between 10 and 14 years old. As soon as she arrived at the farm, she found herself being continually followed by a shadowy figure of a man dressed in dark clothes. At first, he only looked at her and she steadfastly ignored him. Eventually, however, he began to torment her and at last she told her master and mistress to his unwelcome attentions. Their advice was to be brave and to speak to the unearthly apparition, but she said she could not. Time passed by and the family grew to know when the ghost was present by the terrified look on Elspeth's face as she was set about the household duties or cried aloud in her bed at night. Finally, she was persuaded to put her trust in God and ask the ghost what he wanted and the coast told her that he was relieved that she had asked, had found the courage to speak because he was under a spell which would only break when she spoke. How many ghosts are wandering around just going, please talk to me? Bless him. He then instructed her to take up a board from an upstairs room and take out what she found and follow him. She did as he said, and the two of them went downstairs and through the living room, despite the efforts of friends and neighbours to stop her, and left the house. Once outside, she was taken up in the air and carried away at great speed. The ghost flew her to a part of the Eli River where she dropped whatever it was they were carrying down into the waters below. On their way back to the farm, the ghost told um, Effie that they would now leave him, that he would leave in peace. She never saw him again and, having been sworn to secrecy, never revealed to anyone what had been thrown in the water. Doom, doom, doom. I like the fact that there's, there's quite a few ghosts that make you fly in, in Glamorgan. So, 
wasn't that didn't I, I think I remember listening to one of your Spectre of the Sea and that was kind of incorporated into the is that very one? similar one yeah. um because we went along the river Ogmore um where you know whenever they say oh but ghosts can't actually hurt you I'm like excuse me in in um, Glamorgan in Ogmore Castle there's a ghost that guards the treasure at the bottom of the tower it's not been found yet but apparently she comes every seven years and there was one particular person who uh went to try and find the treasure and this ghost appeared and uh, she started um, attacking. No, first of all, she said, if you take half the treasure and leave the, the other half, then I'll leave you go in peace because he found it. And it was sort of like, you know, okay, you found it well done, but be on your way. And he did take half of it, but then he came back for the rest. And when he came back for the rest, she was no other way of putting it, beat the shit out of him. <laughs> Um, she had claws. She scratched him, absolutely beat him to an inch of his life. And then um, he died three weeks later of an unknown illness. Don't? Internal bleeding. Probably, yeah. No, it's, it, And the way they described these things was pretty grim and detailed. It's like his innards were on his outards. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And so, oh, but ghosts can't hurt you. Well, yeah, just don't go to Ogmore Castle. Um, I found another story. This is my last one because there's <laughs> another ghost that was couldn't speak until spoken to and it's a bit grimmer this one so enjoy a rather more macabre story was told by a cardiff man who was walking home from canton to leckwith one night when he was joined by another man who dogged his footsteps and looked at him imploringly as the cardiff man said he could not rid of himself at this silent companion and this is his actual words now i called him names and threatened him he only kept looking at me but said nothing I got into a rage and said, Nay, no do, what do you want? And tears ran down his face and he said, I couldn't speak until you asked me. Oh. <laughs> Another one. Um, I am dead, but I cannot rest till my head is buried. I was a boatman, he said, down by the Eli River, and my head is on the bank and devils like to play football with it. If you come and bury it, I shall rest. So I agreed to go in search of the skull and he took me down to the river, to the bend, just above the Taff Railway Bridge, as it is now. And there... By a bluish light, there was a lot of people kicking a football with the poor man's skull. I thought I would go to them praying, and as I came, they all flew away. So I took the poor man's head and buried it in a soft place, digging a hole with my knife, and the ghost stood and looked at me, and then he went out like some smoke. Oh, it's Again. kind of gory, but it's sweet. Weirdly sweet, isn't it? <laughs> but I think what we've learned from this is that if there is a ghost, just say hello, and then they might just go, oh, thank God for that. Or if you're icy, tell them to calm down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, uh, uh, who are you going to call? Icy Sedgwick. <laughs> oh, my God. I might start getting business off the back of it. Yeah, you, know, you, can, you can live off it. You this, like, sort of travelling exorcist. <laughs> can you just imagine the TV show that that would be? It would be awesome. I'd that watch it. Pet. <laughs> that would be. Real exorcists of Northumberland. Yeah. <laughs> What would be your outfit? Would you, if you could pick, like, would it be like? I imagine some sort of almost like um, black version of the Ghostbusters sort of boiler suit. Oh god, that would make us look like one of Slipknot. Um, <laughs> I would just for a laugh. I'd probably turn up in like neon pink or something. That would be awesome. Just like whatever people would least expect to see. <laughs> Uh, you know, I like confounding expectations, so why not? I don't, I don't, I must admit, I've got a bit of a thing with the idea of exercising ghosts because it's like, well, we don't know where we're sending them. Yes, it's true. So I'm always a little bit like, mm, can you just ask them to, them to go where somewhere that is, it's better suits them and then they can choose and then not be where you are? Um, so I suppose it'd be more like a polite exorcism. 
<laughs> or a, a removal service. Yeah. Or liaison. Almost like HR for ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a position that you'd rather have? Because you look at a lot of ghosts and they're doing really boring things. Like there's a, a shop in town where apparently like, you know, they hear footsteps in the staff room and someone runs up and down the stairs and you're like, that would be a really rubbish way to spend eternity. So I sort of feel like if you could be like, would you rather, you know, instead of having this city centre pub where you're more scared of the hen night, would you rather have this quite quaint like Airbnb in the middle of nowhere? Just, just then. Oh, it could be like escape to the country, but with ghosts. Yes. Oh my god, that'd be <laughs> awesome. That'd be fun. Oh my god, if the BBC are listening, then I'm 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 down for that. <laughs> oh, see, I mean, they've got their entire schedule sorted out just by listening to this. Do you know what that really reminds me of? It reminds me of this computer game I used to play obsessively, which was called Ghostmaster. Oh my god, I had that. Did you? Oh, I loved it so much. But that was like HR for ghosts, wasn't it? And you had yeah. to kind of like, you know, fight, like have the right skills, the right guys for the right job, pick the right, the right set of skills to uh, do a specific task. Like, I don't mind that as a job. In the attic. I think what you want about ghost cash in the attic at one point as well. Yeah, because I was like, if you take the haunted collector, where obviously like John Zaffis used to come in and be like, here's his priceless family heirloom, it's haunted, and then take it away and put it in his museum. And I'm like, ooh, imagine if you didn't do it for necessarily priceless heirlooms, but just the haunted items in your attic. So it would be the haunted collector meets cash in the attic. And I ran that by some of my students and they were like, would totally watch. So... <laughs> Just saying. Although you're not allowed to list haunted items on eBay. Are you not? There's you know, thousands of haunted do dolls on there. There's dieback boxes and all like People list them, but because you can't prove it, like someone tried selling a ghost in a jar once, but the only way you'd know is if you opened the jar. But then if you went, well, it's empty, they'd just go, yeah, because you let the ghost out. <laughs> I mean, someone tried to sell a can of Michael Schumacher's exhaust fumes once on eBay, so, you know, yeah. You just remind me of a girl who was hospitalised for selling her own exhaust fumes. Have you not heard this one? No. She was, like, specifically eating, like, things where she would produce a lot of gas and it it almost it? ruptured her stomach Good but she was selling she was selling j- jars of it for like thousands on ebay capitalism, <laughs> capitalism i know she made a good good amount of money off of it yeah, she had to pay for like stomach surgery yeah. <laughs> Cabin, surely it's much cheaper <laughs> <laughs> better for you well i didn't catch the first bit cabbage yeah. Oh God. Just to I don't know, raise the tone of the conversation again slightly. I'm really <laughs> sorry, I have to do it because I've got one more story. <laughs> Go on then. This is a strange incident that took place around Christmas. And it was recorded in the Grim Almanac of Essex. Um and it comes from an Eliza Vaughan, who was the daughter of the Vicar of Finchingfield. And she recorded this story from some people who came to visit her. And this was uh, a woman who'd passed away recently and she was claimed to be the village witch. So when she died, her relatives were very careful about going through her possessions, especially with the woman's body still lying downstairs in the coffin. And they came across a box containing a number of strange little things. And they describe them as strange little things and nothing else. They don't say what they looked like at all. But they suspected that these were the woman's imps, a little bit like with Canudan and the white mice. Mm, the white mice. And they didn't know what to do with them. 
So they threw the box in the fire and they went about their business and they cleared up all the other the women's other stuff and you know divvied up what was valuable and went off family members went off with it. But when they were finished going through all the possessions, they went downstairs to pay their last respects to this relative of theirs who was a supposed witch. And they found that the coffin was empty apart from piles of ashes. She spontaneously combusted. Well, because they threw the imps in the fire. So they <gasps> think that when they did that. The woman also a poof yeah poof and it's not a christmas story but it happened around christmas according to the grim almanac that makes um, sense. so i wanted to include it and that's my last little story the grim, sorry the grim almanac is an amazing title though mm. i think it's like one of it's like a series of like the grim almanac of suffolk the grim Al- almanac of wherever Herefordshire or something i think i've got the almanac of the uncanny which is a, a reader's digest reader's digest oh <gasps> But it's it is a brilliant book, actually, the Grim Almanac of Essex. It includes things like uh, murders and police reports and so on and so forth. But it does have folklore and like folk medicine, unusual punishments, ghost stories, curses, interspersed amongst all this sort of factual like so and so went that went somewhere. And I think that's where I got the leg story from for the poltergeist episode, where somebody was driving through. Uh, a village and found a dismembered leg and that was just recorded in the almanac just you know just an interesting incident that happened to take place and it ended up in there well i've enjoyed these stories i also want to make a formal apology to elsa that i found a very good book about essex at christmas 10 minutes before we started recording which you've had for a year and i forgot about it as well i should have asked you for it that's the thing i i I like going by like there's a really good secondhand bookshop in wivenhoe they've got like a section on folklore and it's constantly being restocked so i end up coming away with so many books and the, the bless of the lady who runs it now knows what i'm after so she she's like my dealer <laughs> got got some under the counter for you and then the bit my the beer shop is behind it where sammy who listens to this podcast uh, she's like oh, i got some darks in do you want some so i've got little dealers like all around the village <laughs> I've, I've just flicked through and um i've saw the 21st of december written in here which is today uh the longest night and the shortest day wherever the wind is on this day there it will stop for the next month it is also saint thomas's day and on this day old women went a thomasing or collecting money old women again bless them it's too cold to be sending them out there you go so it's good if whatever the wind was the thomasing um local to essex then or is it was it wales as well oh i think it might be i think it may even be in Ireland as well. I can't quite remember. We mm. speaking of um solstice, we did actually sing some songs this morning at the uh so was at Stanton Drew. Oh those pictures you posted were lovely, Joe. Yeah, yeah, it's great down there. And uh Adrian Rook does a fabulous go, you know, every single time he, he puts on a really good ceremony for everyone. There was about two hundred people there this morning. Oh wow. that's the most I've ever seen. But um he had some he had pagan carols which were where the bloody hell are they? I don't know what I've done with them now. Oh here they are. Yeah. Yeah, he had some pagan carols that we were all singing. So I'm I'm gonna post that at some point, but um yeah, it was, it was good to have a good old sing song on on solstice. Yeah. It's, so it's all the it's the carols that we all know and love, but with the words changed. Like, oh, that sounds good. Uh, God yes, God rest ye merry pagan folk. 
and it carries on. Let nothing you dismay. Remember that the sun returns upon the solstice day. So you get an idea of. The oh, that's of, lovely. It was really good, actually. It was a real, real laugh. Yeah, some great ones. That's what we're so going what to do here in Bristol. Well, I actually had one last story. Oh, oh go for it. Uh, if anyone wants to end things with a ghostly monk. Always. Um, yes. Always. What have they been up to now? One of the things that you find a lot with the ghost stories in like Newcastle and wider Tyneside is we've got a lot of ghostly monks. And in Newcastle itself, we have four monasteries and there's only one of them that you can really still see the remains of. But our most famous, I think, uh, monastery in the area is actually out in North Tyneside and that's Tynemouth Priory and or Tynemouth Priory and Castle, I should say, because um, there's also um, the remains of a castle there as well because we've got more castles than you can shake a stick at up here and including one in town, which is hilarious when people don't realise Newcastle has a castle. <laughs> um, that one always makes me chuckle. Um, designed by the same guy that did Dover Castle, incidentally. I've done, I can't which way around to go, um, but it's very, very cool. But anyway, Tynemouth Priory. So it stands on this sort of... Prom- and I love the fact that I'm miming this so you can all see what I'm doing, but like nobody else can. And it's sort of in this little promontory that sort of sticks out into the North Sea, just next to uh, King Edward's Bay. And then you've got King Edward's Bay on one side and like literally the Tyne on the other. And obviously back in the day, um, it used to be... Um, obviously a working monastery obviously until Henry VIII came along and decided no more of that thanks and it's been all sorts of things over it over its year but um, the time we're thinking about obviously is when the Vikings were as as they were want to do up here popping over to alleviate us of things that we'd amassed is probably <laughs> the part the posh way of saying it and they used to come over and there was one particular um prior of the of the monastery called Olaf who was himself Danish and he had actually been wounded in an earlier raid and he was actually nursed back to health by the monks despite the damage that his party had done to the area. He was so impressed by this that he then converted to Christianity, joined the order and then eventually became prior himself. And on this particular evening, and I don't know if this is, a, I don't think this was at Christmas because we don't really have Christmas ghost stories as far as I can find. Uh, we just have them all throughout the year instead. So I don't know if it's just because we've got less sunlight or what, but we do seem quite obsessed with ghosts up here and fairies. It's, it's one or the other. But anyway, all I've had this foreboding uh, you know, things boarded that uh, a raid was imminent. And luckily, the Priory itself is quite well situated for defence because obviously it sticks out. It's got steep cliffs. You've got the sea there. And if anyone's never been in the North Sea, imagine the coldest thing you can and then make it colder all year round. Uh, it never gets warm. And so you had to see, you've got the Black Middens, which are these sort of really dreadful rocks that claimed however many um, ships over the years. And they also had a moat just to add a bit extra on. So the monks were pretty convinced that they were going to be fine. But still, things boarded. Olaf was convinced that things weren't going to going to go well. And a Dane called Eric the Red attacked with his, his band of attackers. And in the ensuing battles, and I love this detail, the monks then dumped a load of sharp rocks off the side of the sort of their battlements onto the men below. And I just love the idea of monks just being that hardcore mm. <laughs> in order to defend the monastery. They're just like, let's just, just to crush a whole load of men. And one of the people <laughs> that one of these massive rocks landed on was Eric the Red. And being monks, they decided they couldn't leave an injured man to his injuries. So they actually brought him inside the monastery. And lo and behold, who should come in and see what was going on but Olaf himself. And they noticed that Olaf seemed a little bit more troubled than you would expect when he laid eyes on this man. 
So we prayed over him and, you know, they did what they could for him. But unfortunately, you know, the crush injuries were too bad and Eric succumbed to them. So the attackers, having lost their leader, fall back. And the monks are obviously singing hymns of thanksgiving and all this kind of thing that the the, the priory's being spared. And then eventually one of the monks is like, hang on a minute, Olaf's not here. You know, you'd think he'd be chuffed. You know, where where is he? So they go looking for him. And they find him apparently still on his knees in prayer in the chapel. Only he's not praying. He's actually frozen because he's died while praying. And they obviously bury him at the priory near Eric the Red, as the story goes. And both of the graves were tended with care. And none of the monks ever mentioned the brotherly similarity between the pair and the, the look of recognition on Olaf's face when he saw, obviously, his erstwhile brother had been the one who was crushed outside the monastery. But Olaf apparently still prowls the priory even now, particularly when, when, when the wind blows from the east and the air is especially clear. So he's still keeping watch for invaders coming over from Scandinavia. And what he used to make of of people coming over on on boats to come and spend money in the northeast because we used to have loads of Scandinavian tourists and it was great. What he made of those, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he's story. one of many ghosts at the Priory. Uh, my favourite, and I do want to add this one just purely because I get the chance to be as Geordie as possible. And I've mentioned this on on Fabulous Folklore when I did the Wizard's Cave of Timemouth, and it's down the side of one of these steep cliffs as this cave that, that nobody can get to, but apparently it was once believed to be haunted by the ghost of potentially a smuggler. And because of his name, he was called Jingle and Geordie because... You know, most people end up getting called Geordie up here at some point. And the, the the reason why it's funny for me, and obviously any any Northerners listening to this might remember Alan Robson, who's this like legend of radio broadcasting in the Northeast. And he's super Geordie, like he's a million times more Geordie than me. And I just always like to think of him referring to the name of this cave as Jingling Geordie's Hole. And he <laughs> <laughs> So every time I think of ghost stories in Timeout, that all I can think of is jingling Jody's hole. And um and the idea of him walking around like jingling with his his chains because he's uh mm-hmm. I think I think he he'd escape from somewhere and then somehow become a smuggler. He prowled around there's a ghostly border collie. <laughs> so yeah. Timeout probably cute. Yeah, oh, it's a really sad story, but I won't go into it. But he uh, basically he was more loyal than his master. Um Aww. oh dog story like Gellert and all that. I can't Oh, too sad. Um, so we, Who's the one in Edinburgh? It's um at the uh, Great Bobby. Bobby. Yeah. So on that note, Dyveth <laughs> Priory is definitely worth a visit, and it 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 does have a lot of a lot of history attached to it. Obviously, um, just from age of nothing else, but yeah, lots of attacking and ghostly monks and so on. That's fab. That's a great story. Yeah, it's fantastic, and we do we do genuinely love monks on this <laughs> show. They're the best stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of ours involve monks and nuns, and I will leave it there. Yeah, we've we've oh. had a fair few of those as well. <laughs> yeah, we should look at nuns. Yeah, I think we've got we've got a a few ghosts. I mean, we've got Borley. There's a nun there, but you know, is it? We'll, we'll get really to there. <laughs> Everyone keeps asking us about Borley, and it's like, Ugh, it's it, I mean, it's so overdone as well. And I know we're specifically Essex, but we can't bring ourselves to do it. <laughs> We will. we will. I just think Langenhoe is so much more, so much more. Yeah. I know Harry Price was there. But Harry we'll Price has been him. everywhere. He has. <laughs> There's another T-shirt for you. He's been <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Amberlynn, she gets around. The ghost. Yeah. <laughs> what was the other one? Uh, just, just wear what you like. You're dead next year. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this evening. It's been so lovely 
to hang out with you both. I just only wish we all lived closer and then this could have been at a pub with chips. Oh, chips. But also it would have been lovely to have you all in person. (laughs) Yeah, that's well, yeah, that was a given. (laughs) (laughs) Just any time somebody mentions chips recently, my brain just goes, Homer Simpson. Mm, (laughs) I'd think of that old advert, you know, the daddy or chips one. Oh, daddy or chips. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Do you remember the crisp and dry advert with the oil? Mama don't want no fatty food from no cooking oil. They don't make adverts like that anymore. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah. I, I just demonstrated it. I, I was thinking of um, Shake and Vac instead, which I think shake probably and precedes that. Not crisp and dry, Shake and Vac. <laughs> you don't want to get them mixed up. No. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Carpet ruined forever. We'll All your things to these. <laughs> oh, and I think every like the, the most folk horror-y advert ever met the Jedder Man. Yeah. Oh, that was brilliant. Do you remember that, Joe? It was weird. The Jedi Man. Right. In Jersey. Because I used to, to come to my grands, you know, in the UK, and I'd be like, I'd just be really enjoying all the ads and the ad breaks because we didn't have any of that. We had sort of local ads from Farm Price and Clements Coast Road, Jersey, and things like that, coming out with their <laughs> local supermarket ads. <laughs> I wish we had more local ads. Oh, like my God, the, the Jedi Man's on YouTube. <gasps> yes, it is. Yeah, I have watched it on there before. I'll put it on our Facebook chat. Joe has to witness the Jedi man when the moon is fat. It is a, I mean, I saw this when I was a kid and I remember thinking it was a surrealist nightmare. Mm-hmm. And also sort of questioning what the real purpose of alcohol was at that time. Yeah, did, did, did it you just become the Jedi man's like servant or something? It was, but it, it was, it was very it. like, it was like very much a fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't drink their food. Don't. No, don't drink their food. Don't drink their drinks or eat their food. You love that was it. a Christmas advert, wasn't it? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> there you go. At least it's, it's relevant. There you go. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I've got no more stories for tonight. I'm tapped out. Us, and now I just want some chips. Yeah, yeah chips. Go get some chips. Chips. <laughs> Should we say goodbye then? Yeah. I think so. Thank you yeah. both so much for joining us. Lovely My to pleasure. see you all. We will meet in person, I'm sure of it, at some point. Well, we're going to yeah, have will. a BBC series. I don't Yeah. <laughs> the BBC can't deny us now. Oh yes, true, 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 true. Who's going to drive the bus though? Well, I can't drive, so it's probably best you don't let me anywhere <laughs> near it. I mean, I could give it a go. I mean, how hard can it be? But <laughs> didn't, didn't, Beth, and, what... Beth and can't drive either, and I'm terrified of motorways. So. <laughs> I do believe when I floated the idea, the lawmen volunteered. Oh my god, so. that would be hilarious. Yeah, that would be. I can just imagine them I'm bickering in the that. front over who gets to like ride shotgun. <laughs> I know it'll be hilarious. So we'll just sit there, just watching it all. We'll we'll take a dog with us too, because you know, because you have to. Well, have great evenings and um, have a lovely Yuletide Christmas Saturnalia. We're kind of slightly well, we're kind of smack bang covering all bases at the moment, but yeah, cover all bases. I hope we'll Santa visits time. and you see him, Joe. I hope Santa I hope, visits. Yeah, I hope you have a Santa yeah, sighting this year. I am excited. I am Are you going to stay up? Uh, I will stay up. Well, the munchkin goes to sleep quite early, so that's not so difficult these days. But this year, my son said, look, you don't need to sneak in these 20. You don't need to sneak into my room anymore. Um, I said, shall I just put it downstairs by the Christmas tree? He said, yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. Oh. Actually, <laughs> do you do you leave out um, cookies and or oh, mince pies and brandy? 
not not in the old days but I know that's kind of a thing now so we would now uh we will for for my my parents always did that for us really yeah we never did that this was again with the tongue in cheek, you know. Oh yeah, Santa came and he had the mince pie and then drank all that brandy. <laughs> Bet he did. Dad's like stinking of uh, booze the next day. We used to leave things out for like the reindeer, but never Santa. Really? Leave carrots, and yeah, then there'd be like a really obvious a bite mark. Yeah. But do you not think though, like even sorry, this is just like it's like tangent, but with the whole thing of like with brownies, like you leave them food, but like you don't give it to them. You just leave it somewhere that they'll find it. Is Santa actually a brownie? <gasps> Could be. Oh, and, and can, like can you know, he tidy my house for me? <laughs> but then you know how brownies can become boggarts if they're annoyed. Could that be Santa and Krampus? Santa becomes Krampus if you're naughty. Or maybe that's when he just starts leaving like really rubbish things. Because yeah. considering every year, if I go past Pandora in town, there's always a massive lane of people obviously wanting oh, to I never get things. that, yeah. <laughs> so I was a wish list, people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll shush now. That's me done. No, I, I, I love a good tangent. And I think you've yeah. covered something there. Well, last time we got together with Joe, we um, we still need to do that digging in, digging into dogging um, areas and fairy sightings. What? I knew you'd bring that up. <laughs> God. Well, <laughs> well, we kept bringing up fairy sightings in specific areas, yeah. and especially in Essex. And I kept saying, that's a well-known dogging area. That's a well-known dogging area. I just <laughs> like, want to know how you knew all these places were well-known dogging areas. Yeah, this is... <laughs> I think the I think Colchester Gazette once had a very slow news day. Yeah. And I they mean, did top dogging sites. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. But also um, everybody knew Hilly Fields was anyway. Everyone it was like a, yeah. where there was a sighting and UFOs. A fairy sighting, not just a sighting of people dogging. <laughs> Imagine if there was on the paranormal database. Dogging. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, we should get sponsored by them. We are. So probably we shouldn't. <laughs> they recently give us a grant yep. to make Essex seem nice. <laughs> that note. <laughs> it might bring people here. It depends on what you're into. It's, a, you know, a certain clientele. <laughs> we don't kink shame on here, yes. No. no, I was like literally laughing at the tourist board there. <laughs> on that note <laughs> on that note well one little thing before we do go Erie Essex is on the road in January we're going to be posting dates and locations where we're going we're going to Basildon we're going to Epping going back to Chelmsford Chelmsford Record Office Clacton Wivenhoe Colchester we're going to Epping twice next year because we are in the summer when Aaron from Appalachian Podcast comes over we're all going hunting Bigfoot, are you joining us in Epping, you two? Quite possibly. When When is it going to be? July? June, probably. June. I see. Do you want to come and look for budget Bigfoot? We can't afford to go to America. <laughs> uh, it, it would depend when in June, because um, I'm supposed to be going to a conference in Sweden at the end of the month. So. Oh, that's slightly more exciting. That than... is more exciting than like... <laughs> budget Bigfoot. Budget <laughs> Bigfoot. Don't downplay budget Bigfoot. That's going to be a good... Again, a brand name. It is, yeah. Another T-shirt. <laughs> so, oh, thank you again for... I'll keep saying that and then we find something else to talk about. But this time, we'll let you go and we'll speak soon. So it's goodbye from Elsa. It's goodbye from Bethan. Goodbye from Joe. And goodbye from Icy. Bye. Bye. Bye, <laughs> Bye everybody. 
If you'd like to get in contact with us with a story of your own or any more information about what we've discussed in this episode, you can reach us at eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to contact us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram under the handle Eerie Essex. On Twitter, we are under Eerie underscore Essex. You can also find us on Patreon and Coffee if you'd like to support the podcast.